for me, that's really how I spent most of my life. Like life happens to me. Everything happens to me. I don't really have choice. I really didn't feel like I had agency and everything. Like, you know, Shabbos comes and it happens to me. Yom Tov comes and it happens to me. I have to this. I have to that. I have all these responsibilities and I have to. I have to have all these children. I have to raise all these children. I have to do it a certain way. I have to. I have to. I have to. Hello there. My name is Tanya Khazanov, and you're listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast, please reach out to us at info at humanandholy.com or visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor to dedicate an episode through the site. Human and Holy is a nonprofit, and we are powered by your sponsorships. Thank you for bringing Chassidus into every corner of the world. Today, we are going to be talking about reclaiming desire and the experience of pleasure in our Yiddishkeit. What does it look like to move from I have to to I want to? And how does shutting ourselves down in service of our Yiddishkeit end up removing us completely from connecting to God? Today, Rishi shares her personal journey of victimhood, how she felt like life and her Judaism was happening to her, and how getting back in touch with her own personal rutzam, her own will, reconnected her to her family and to God. You're a pro. Total. <laughs> you know total what to do. <laughs> okay. I'm so excited that you're here. Let's start with you introducing yourself. Tell us your name and tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay. I'm Rishi and I am a fully alive human, thank God, and very privileged to be a wife, a mom, and a shulcha. Okay. Nice. Today we're going to have a conversation about bringing desire and pleasure back into our Jewish space and into our soul language, like the way we interact with soulful things and with our Yiddishkeit and with Torah and Jewish practice. I would love if you could start us off just by sharing a little bit about your personal journey. Could we like take a step back? Because I feel like we got into this conversation when we were talking about sometimes feeling disconnected from our Yiddishkeit mm-hmm. and sometimes like losing our sense of self. And what that brought up for me was my own journey in coming back to myself because I'd lost myself. I had found that my relationship with Hashem and with Yiddishkeit just became more real and more present. Like it became just much more of reality and much more embodied. So we were talking about how our sense of self is very much connected to how we feel about our Yiddishkeit, right? That's how we got into this conversation. Yeah. And it was at a time when I was just beginning to like take these ideas of Ratzain, which means desire or will, and Tainug, which means pleasure and enjoyment, beginning to sort of look at them in a different way and begin to understand what those things mean. Those were ideas that we'd learned about Chazidus, you know, growing up in our education and 
didn't really know what they meant <laughs> at all. Not only that, but I think personally for me, those ideas felt very far away because my trauma filtered those ideas out. So those ideas just, they were just terms, you know? And whenever you learn a piece of Hasidus that has to do with like Seder Hashdalshalis, which is the Kabbalah, in the Kabbalah, it describes the process through which Hashem created our physical reality and through which Hashem contracted his light in order to create this sort of vacuum where separateness, consciousness can exist, where we physical beings can exist in a world that doesn't look like Hashem is there, right? So in describing this whole order, you know, we're very familiar with the different spheres and then above the emotions, then there's like the three intellectual faculties, right? Chachma, Bina, Das, and then above that is I think Kesar or something. <laughs> I don't know so much Chesedus. And somewhere above Kesar, or maybe it's part of Kesar, I don't know, are these things called Ratzen and Tainuk? So they're just ideas. And personally, for me, there's just my own personal trauma, inherited trauma, there's collective trauma, right? And so leftover from World War II, a lot of us have like scarcity mindset, where words like desire and pleasure almost sound like dirty words. They almost sound like desire and pleasure, like, ew, like that's gross, right? Are you allowed to want things? Are you allowed to desire? Are you allowed to have pleasure in things? Like that is almost, I don't know. Like, so I think through that consciousness, I filtered out a lot of the teachings of Hasidus to mean things that they don't really mean. Like mm. a lot of denying yourself things, a lot of messaging around, there's no room for you to have a self because that's just, that was just where I was. And so that's how I heard everything. And so in my process of coming back and you know healing a lot of that, returning to who I really truly am, I'm beginning to sort of take a look at this idea that desires, our desires are so connected to the essence of who we are. And now I'm thinking back to where was the first time I heard this idea of Ratzain, right? So most of us have learned some Tanya. I'm not a Tanya whiz, but you know, the basic fundamental idea that Hashem desired a dwelling place down below Right, yeah. something. So, what is that desire? And the Alter writes how, like a will, a desire just transcends. It's it's above our intellectual faculties. It goes beyond yeah. rationale. It goes beyond our being able to articulate why we want something. It just speaks to the deepest essence, like our deepest core of who we are. And from that place, Hashem created the world. Like that's a very very powerful energy. Where Tainuk fits in Seder's Dalshos, I don't 100% know. I didn't learn the sources, but I believe it's somewhere up there as well. And the pleasure that Hashem has from us doing mitzvahs, or the pleasure that Hashem has from human beings in a world where Hashem is concealed and choosing to pull the curtain back and to find Hashem and to choose Hashem, that gives Hashem so much pleasure. Okay, so desire and pleasure, really powerful energies, but somehow in my journey got completely lost and distorted. And so I'm just experimenting with what does that feel to be truly myself, to experience my own desire, to experience my own pleasure and how that transforms my relationship with Hashem. I love how you pointed out that so much of the language used for Hashem is Hashem desired the world. Hashem takes pleasure in our mitzvahs. And somehow we have completely disconnected from the real human experience of desiring and having pleasure. And you said like, am I allowed to want? What does it mean 
to want. I'm curious to know for you, like when you began to reapproach this idea of making space for your desires, what did that mean? What did that look like? I have to say it's a very vulnerable experience because you have to have trust. And I think trust is a very vulnerable thing because you're trusting that there's room for you in the universe. I happen to be somebody who I know deep in my core, I'm like a really big person and I was never allowed to take up space. And so for me to believe that there is space for me in this room, for me to be fully myself is very vulnerable to really trust in that. And so like leaning into my desires can be very difficult and also very emotional. Can I just tell you what happened last week? Yeah. <laughs> I had this moment last week. So you know how like Devarino Spam is doing this retreat this week? I wanted nothing more than to go to this retreat. Like when I found out about it, it was like a week before or something. And I'm like, I have to go. I want to go. My Every like cell in my body wants to go. <laughs> but like, of course, I just like dismissed it because of course I can't go. It's like a thousand dollars and like who can get away from their lives for four days. And I have so many commitments and you just, whatever, it's not, you know. And then at the end of the week, I was like, I started learning Sharpatakhan. I found a Hafrasa on the WhatsApp group and I just like, I dove right in last week and it was just amazing. And it finally came together for me, like the ideas of learning to trust Hashem, which is basically a free fall into Hashem's arms. And when you learn about the components of what it takes to trust a being and how no created being has all those different elements, only Hashem does, and then getting in touch with what I really wanted, right, for myself. I got to a place where I understood that maybe I have so much, like I have so many blessings and am I allowed to even want more? Like, am I allowed to? Maybe Hashem just wants me to lean deeper into my desire and trust that Hashem has room to give me even more than what I have. I can't explain that for me, it's just such a radical thing. Like I literally just cried for like a half an hour because just the idea that maybe I could even want more than I already have. I don't know. It was such a profound moment. Like after that, it was like, whether I went and got what I wanted or not didn't even matter. But the fact that I made space for my desire was such a powerful experience for me. So I guess every day I'm uncovering another layer of what it means to really desire and really trust Hashem with my desires. You mentioned at the beginning how this conversation organically came up between us because we were speaking about feeling disconnected from our Yiddish guide at the same time that we feel disconnected from ourselves. And often those two things come together in our lives. And when we don't allow ourselves to experience pleasure within our Yiddishkeit, to experience a personal sense of desire for God, for Tyra, for all that that entails, we shut ourselves down and we start disassociating. And then we're like, why am I feeling so disconnected from Yiddishkeit? Right. We become robotic. But it's very connected to like us not allowing ourselves to even take pleasure in our Yiddishkeit, which, as you mentioned, is the holiest thing we could possibly do because it's the soul taking pleasure in being engaged with God. That's what it is. That's like actually what is happening spiritually. But as a human being, we're like, that's a dirty word, desire, pleasure, like enjoying this. But that's because there's wounds there. See, there's blockages there that kind of block the real flow of what's really happening. Part of what trauma does is it, it can put you in a, in a victim mindset. And for me, that's really how I spent most of my life. Like life happens to me. Everything happens to me. I don't really have choice. I really didn't feel like I had agency and everything. Like, you know, Shabbos comes and it happens to me. Yom Tov comes and it happens to me. I have to this. I have to that. 
I have all these responsibilities and I have to, I have to have all these children. I have to raise all these children. I have to do it a certain way. I have to, I have to, have to. Mm. Okay. Like no wonder we start like disassociating and no wonder we start like, I would literally, I literally hate a job is. I would avoid thinking about Yom Tov until it just was next week and I had to just do it. And then I felt like I had to wing it or just make it happen somehow and was miserable and didn't like the way it came out. And I didn't feel like I chose any of it. And I just had this amazing experience just recently where I learned to like take a few steps back and actually dream, like paint this beautiful picture of what it is like, what would a beautiful sukkah look like? What would a Shabbos look like? And then a year ago, I couldn't tell you what, I, I couldn't come up with anything. I was so, I was so disconnected from myself, but like, mm. thank God along my journey, I, I could close my eyes in a few minutes. Like things will come up. I really like love having people over. <laughs> I actually really do. I really love having lots of yummy food. I actually really do. I love it when my kids are happy and they're enjoying and they're having fun. Of course everyone does, but I never thought that I actually really liked it. I never even considered that I could want those things because like you have to, mm. you don't get a choice. You ha- like you have to. And I, there wasn't room. Like I didn't, I didn't even create room. So once I began to shift out of victim and more into like, I don't have to anything, but do I want to? <laughs> and there are a lot of things that I still don't want. And I think it's just the process of painting a picture and I, can I just tell you what happened on Sukkot? Because it was just such a beautiful lesson to me, you know? So it was like maybe a week and a half before Sukkot. I think next time I'd give myself more time, but like I was so inspired by the idea of having couches in my Sukkot and having just parties and getting together with people who I really love and hanging out and having yummy snacks and having hot drinks. And I just love the nature of Sukkot. I love the sensory. I love the leaves and the lulav and the asarag and the spirituality and everything. It speaks to me so much. It's like one of my favorite holidays. And I really just spent a good while just leaning into that fully, you know? Two days later, I had couches in my sukkah. Long story. Some neighbor decided to lend them to me. I didn't have anything at that point. Hashem granted us beautiful weather. I didn't run any programs for the community during the week. I had a great time with my kids. We did so many fun things together. And that space that I was in, I felt inner expansiveness. I felt joy. It's not like my kids weren't fighting and having issues. Like they were doing all the things they always do, but it didn't take up space inside of me. Like it always does. I didn't feel burdened by it because I chose to spend the week with them. I wanted to have fun with them. And so it was such a different sort of vibration. And I could just see afterwards how healing that was for my family, for them to have like a mother who was just so in joy, like just joyful and just really enjoying. And that taught me the power of what Tainuk is. It is so powerful. It's magic. <laughs> I had never experienced that before. I never had the government of reference for it before. So that was like my first taste of it. And what does that mean to choose to enjoy? I think that when we put our desires out there, I don't know, we open up a channel somewhere and sometimes those things come flowing. You know, I felt like I was the one blocking so much of what I could have had in my life by simply not believing there was room for it. Can I tell you a massive example? At the end of the summer, this is, I promise you, like a direct result of doing some healing as I finally got myself a full-time housekeeper. Okay. People are like, okay, so what? But I want to tell you that for me, that is so, that is so huge because I never allowed that support in my life because I didn't believe 
that I could have that support. I didn't believe that I was worthy of that support. And so in some way, my energy was like blocking it. And then finally, I don't know, something opened up and Hashem sent me this bracha that was waiting for me, but I was not allowing it in. And with that support that I have now in my home, I feel like now there's room for me to expand myself. Like now I can do all this work of really leaning to the bigness of who I am, like really like finding room, really spreading out, really dreaming, really desiring. What I was so bogged down with like, I don't know, like dishes and laundry and finding clean socks for the kids and not letting the kids play because they're going to make a mess and I have to clean up and like just feeling stressed and constricted all around. Because I have the support now, it is such a gift from Hashem. It is such a bracha. Like now I can lean into joy. I can enjoy my kids. It can make a mess. I could sit on the couch and dream about what kind of Shabbos I want to have or like do the things that fill up my soul. There's space for it now. And this is like a new stage of my healing. And I just feel like the, the more I heal, the more I have access to these amazing tools that Hasidus is giving us that I just never had access to before. Like you could say them, but I didn't, and maybe I could understand intellectually what you mean but it was so disembodied. I couldn't love them. I just want to pinpoint if anyone is listening and is like feeling like they are currently in a victim mindset and might feel a little bit like, well, you have the cleaning help. So you're able to be expansive or dream. What came first was entering into that state of desire. And first, when we don't have any proof, when we feel limited, when we don't have the support, when we don't feel like we have space for desire in our life, we expand within our own selves. And that's when the expansiveness happens around us. Yes. It's the energy we put out into the world. Like, yeah. I didn't even realize that. I didn't even realize that I was almost creating my reality in a certain way. And I literally couldn't see it. I thought that it was all happening to me. It was all external stuff. But my, the way I positioned myself in my life was really bringing back to me that same energy. And so moving out of that mindset, I felt like just opened up so many doors for me. Can you describe what state you were in before going through this process? Like what is the opposite of living with a sense of desire and leaning into pleasure within your life and with your family, with your Yiddishkeit? What's the opposite of that? What were you living through? <laughs> through a lot of have to. And a lot of, I want to say that the responsibilities felt crushing to me and I just hated it. And all I could see were the things that I wished weren't there. And I felt like that's the way it is. That's just the way my life is. And I felt like I created the story where no one's life is as chaotic as mine. Nobody has X, Y, and Z circumstances that I do. And then I would sort of isolate myself within myself. And it just went on and on. Like the stories I told myself about my reality were like creating the reality, like total victim mindset. I had lost my power. I had lost my sense of self. Like, who even am I? What do I even want? I felt like I was just in the backseat of a roller coaster. And whatever life was serving me that day or whatever, you know, poor me. I feel yeah. so bad for myself. I don't know. Does that make any sense? I'm trying to think if there's like a, a way that I can paint a clearer picture. But I think there are the people, <laughs> people who know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I talk to a lot of people on I'm not the only one who's living in that place, like at all, for sure not. I hear that a lot. I think you summed it up with have to, like I was living in a have to mindset. Even when you gave that example of Yamdiv, it was like, generally it's like, I have to have guests and I have to make 
nice food and I have to give my kids a good time. And then the difference between having to do those things or just figuring out what you want and sometimes coming to the same things, but with a completely different energy. Can I just tell you something? Okay. Yeah. So along with the, my household support that I just treasure so much, I also now have support in my Chabad work. We hired an assistant and so much of what I had to do myself, now somebody else can support me with. Today we were talking about an event coming up and the mindset I had gotten into from years of feeling so unsupported and so like what I really want to do, I can't do. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't, I can't, I can't. I have too many kids, too many responsibilities. I can't make a program that looks nice. I can't this, I can't that. I basically learned to like take down my standards so low that I Mm. hated what I was putting out into the community. And I didn't know why, but I felt this like, this sense of shame and embarrassment and just hating myself and hating all the work I was doing and feeling so disconnected from it and just wanting to completely quit. And now that I have, this person just started literally before Yom Kippur, two mm. weeks ago. And now the empty's over. We're just starting to get into a routine and just starting to like figure out how she can support this and how she can support that. And I said to her, oh, you're going shopping for X, Y, and Z. You know, I completely forgot we should get table linens and I completely forgot we should get the flowers. And like, we can make this little refreshment table look really pretty. And I'm like, oh my God, I completely forgot. I forgot that I care about how it looks. I completely shoved that away because it wasn't practical. I felt like I couldn't. There isn't room for it. I just have to focus on what I have to do and I have to just do what's easiest and just get by and whatever. And the joy got sucked out of it over time. And I just woke up one day and I'm like, I hate this. I don't want to do it anymore. And now that Hashem is giving me the support that I'm asking for and trusting him to send me, Now it's like, wait, what's the beauty that I want to bring here? You know, I think that a lot of these ideas that we're talking about are so closely connected to femininity, you know, like a woman's desires are, is very powerful. A woman's pleasure is so powerful. A woman brings beauty to her environment. That's so powerful. And I just threw all those gifts away or like, just felt like I couldn't Felt like that wasn't my lot in life, you know, but really like that's so the essence of who we are as women. No, I, I don't know where the source of it is. I'm like, I'm studying. I'm like, I'm listening. I'm so curious about the connection to femininity and these, and these things just for my own understanding, just sort of re- like reclaiming that part of myself. But does that resonate? Yeah. I love what you said about beauty, Rishi, because beauty is one of those things like you don't have to have, like you can have a program without beauty. You can have a home without beauty. You can have a table without beauty. You can have an event without beauty. But when someone injects beauty into one of those experiences, it's clear that whoever created that space wanted to be there, wanted to put an extra effort just so that it would be beautiful, which technically is unnecessary. So there's like a certain, there's like the energy of the other person's desire, which expands the whole experience for the people receiving it. Suddenly it's like this- it's a different yeah. room I would, that you're in. I would just tell myself that I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. It was such a lie to myself. I so care. <laughs> I just didn't feel like I had room. I was like, you know, I didn't believe. I didn't trust. You know what I'm thinking? What are you thinking? Now I'm thinking about how there's so many areas where we tell ourselves that we don't care in order to numb the pain of Protective, being yeah. disassociated and not finding pleasure in it. I would love to talk about pleasure, like in your personal experience of Yiddishkeit, 
I'm curious to know, have you found yourself saying like, I just don't care about, you know, elements of Yiddishkeit, but really it was like blocked desire and inability to experience pleasure. How did this express itself like in your personal relationship with your Yiddishkeit, with the Shem? Well, in many different areas. And we already talked about, I guess, how I would approach like Shabbos and Yom Tov, right? I just like wanted to get, my goal was just to get through everything. Just get through it. Just get through it. Get to the other side. And I knew there was something very wrong with that. I wanted to live in it. I wanted to be present. I wanted to enjoy it. So maybe it's with my kids, like allowing myself to have fun with them. Like I love having fun. Is that okay? I'm allowed to have fun. Just do mm. like be spontaneous, do crazy things, go on crazy trips, like not be so planned out, like just do fun things. Like I was talking to one of my kids the other day about Hanukkah. I never thought about Hanukkah until the week before because I have to, I have to think about this and I have to do that. And all the obligations were just like, so it just felt like so heavy to me. But now I'm like, Ooh, we want to have fun this Hanukkah. And she's giving me all these ideas. I saw here, this family does this type of party and they make these crazy popcorn one night. And the next night they do, um, like a tie dye night. And the next time, and I was like, Oh my God, that's so fun. Oh my God. All I want to do is have fun with my kids all Hanukkah. I'm not even doing any programs. Okay. We have a menorah lighting and that's it. Like I told my husband, I'm staying home like the rest of the nights with my kids and we're having fun. We're filling our house with joy and fun. That is what my family needs. Like my whole family needs to heal. I've traumatized all of them. <laughs> but it's not even like your family needs that. But no, but you I didn't lead with, I know I'm saying <laughs> you said that, but you didn't lead with that. You led with, I want to have fun this Hanukkah. Fun. And I think that like, that is the secret is that, you know, I'm sure like it feels radical sometimes to just be like, you know what? I just want to have fun. I just want, what do I want? And what it's do such I want? a huge opener in our lives. It like, is. It so is. It so, yeah. so is. What do I want? It's a question that sadly, I think so many women have a hard time answering. What do I want? Who am I? <laughs> and I think both of us know that like there is a cynical counterpart within ourselves, within the world to this idea, which is like, what do you want? Not what do you want? What is needed from you? Like, how can you this is my trauma. make space? Yes. This is your job. Yeah, it is. Hi, I'm here. <laughs> I came to visit. I came to be a part no, of this conversation. It's, it's, all the mes- it's all the messaging from our culture that either was transmitted from a traumatized place or entered to me through my scarcity mindset, right? Okay. I'm all for the idea of giving yourself over for a higher ideal, but you have to have a self to give over. Yeah. If you don't have a self, what are you doing? It's like, there's no one home. There's no one there. <laughs> like Hashem wants full human beings. Yeah. And I feel like a full human being is someone who's so deeply connected to themselves and can like, and is so like, is so connected to yourself. You almost don't even have, like it opens up more room for like the divine light to flow through you into the world. I think cutting away ourselves and pushing away ourselves in the end, we get all these different parts that are screaming for attention because we're neglecting them begin to crowd up inside of us. And they're all screaming and yelling for attention and we don't have space. Now there's tightness inside. It's crowded inside. A feeling of expansion and openness and space is when self is leading. Self is your neshama. And I think that a neshama that is, I mean, for sure, a woman who's truly at home in herself, right? When her neshama is so like at peace and at home and is leading and a woman is leading from her true femininity and from her true place. Like we are the vessels of light. 
No, it's not the feminine thing is to be able to draw down the godly light and make it material, <laughs> right? I feel like that's such a womanly thing. I don't know why. I just feel like it is. It is. Yeah. And I love that. Like when the neshama is leading, the highest level of connection to God is through desire, like through true desire to be connected. And we're so, I think we're so we don't really trust that we actually have a soul. So we're like afraid. I think it's like, we're so afraid of like this shadow and that like maybe the desire within us is dark when really the desire within us is light and free and fun and joyful and wants to be connected. And if you let loose that part of you, like how much richer your experience of your soul will be because suddenly your soul will actually have a voice. I think that like when we limit desire, we limit the voice of our soul. Yeah. And I don't know how it somehow got lost in translation that desire is a bad thing. How could you want things for yourself? How could you just want things? It's not about you. (laughs) It's Gullahs. We've lived in Gullahs for so long, but like now we have to bring Gullah to our consciousness. And so we have to start speaking a different language. And so reclaiming our Ratsan, reclaiming our Tainuk, I think is how we bring Gullah awareness, consciousness into ourselves. And then we can bring it into the world, right? Once we are, when we're living in a state of Gullah, that just comes out of us. And then we bring Gula to our surroundings. Yeah. I mean, didn't there ever say that Mashiach's here? And all they have to do is open our eyes. What does it mean to open our eyes? It's the consciousness that's beginning to wake up and see that one second, I don't have to. I don't have to. What do I want? You're right. I think there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear into leaning into people's desires because you're afraid that you're a depraved person and your desires are really like, are dark, right? We're afraid of our darkness. I don't know. Maybe I'm just privileged to have like been able to see that the darkness isn't real. The light is real. And I think that the more we trust Hashem and lean into it, like I just see the results of it. And it's just a lot more Hashem and a lot more God consciousness and a lot more Gula and a lot more expansiveness and a lot more freedom. And it's a lot less have to, and it's a lot less pressure and it's a lot less victim and it's a lot less constriction and closeness and tightness. and. I don't know. I'm just like looking at the results, you know, which are telling me that there's something here and that I should look further. I don't know. But the language of Gullahs is just, I mean, that train has left the station. <laughs> uh, Yiddishkeit that's driven by fear, that's Gullahs. It's, it's over. We need to begin leading into a Yiddishkeit that is driven by love and desire and pleasure. I think that it can seem like this is just a nice to have, like a nice extra. But I know for myself, the price we pay when we see this as a nice to have, when I am living in a state of have to, I see how like every part of me shuts down and disconnects from everything in my life, including God, including Yiddishkeit, (laughs) including Torah. And I'm like, I don't know why I can't feel anything. I'm like doing the same things that technically inspire me or should inspire me or have inspired me or have brought so much joy and beauty and that I've seen the beauty and joy of it. And I can't feel anything. And that experience to me for myself is proof that if I am leading with the have to, then I sacrifice everything. I sacrifice my soul's voice. I sacrifice my connection to people, to God. And the only thing I don't sacrifice is the robotic motion. Right. Because your essence is not there anymore. Yeah. And what does Hashem desire? Hashem desires you, the full you. Yeah. Not just your hands and your feet. Yeah. 
And if you're not home, if you can't, yeah. What, what I mean is like, you can be there, but if you're not home, if you're not there, then, I mean, we feel it. We feel how painful that is to like be within our lives in that state when we're not there. Yeah. When we feel disconnected from our own lives, our own reality. Yeah. Like I'm doing the things that I think I chose once upon a time to do, but I don't feel like I'm choosing it now. I don't feel like I'm there now. Like you're just so disconnected from it. It's a terrible feeling. Yeah. Do you think the opposite of leaning into Rutzen and Tainug is disassociating? Yeah. I think for many people, I think we all have our different adaptive things. We all have our different defenses, our defensive behaviors, protective behaviors, have you? You know, for some people it is dissociating. For some people, it's walking away from all of it and throwing it all away. Right? They're like, "To heck with this! I have to find all of it for myself. This is not me." Right? For some people, I don't know. For me, it was just like a lot of victim, victimhood, and a lot of resentment and a lot of anger that came with it because I had lost myself and I'm angry now. I'm angry because now I'm living through everybody else, but I'm I'm not I'm not me. I'm not there. Why does everyone else get to exist but not me? There's so much resentment there. So that was my life. But I think everyone, we all figure out ways to protect ourselves from that pain. So shutting down could be a way. Why does everyone else get to exist but me? You live your life for everybody else. You serve everybody else. But where am I? I mean, most, most people, if you like a healthy person, that question is answered from your early years, you know, in your home. And if you haven't had that question answered when you're young, you're going to have to find answers to that question when you're an adult. <laughs> And then you're looking to other people to tell you who you are instead of looking inside because you don't know who you are. So you run around looking for people to tell you that you're okay in some way. You're looking for some kind of sense of self through others. But over time, that breeds a lot of resentment because you're just looking to take from others. You're empty inside. For me, it was like people pleasing for years. I was doing things to get to impress people so that they can tell me how amazing I am and that I'm so this and I'm so that because that gave me something. Like my ego needed it because I literally didn't know who I was. I didn't have a sense of self. So I had to create one out of like, I had to build one for myself out of nothing, you know, and it's nothingness. So when it all comes crashing down, all that stuff, because it's all false, you know, then you're left at the bottom and you're like, wait, I have to start over. <laughs> so, I mean, I was telling you that I was struggling with finding myself in Shulchas. I haven't found myself yet, but like that's, that's the ego, not the ego death, but like that's sort of the disintegration of what I used to have in my communal work. I was really looking to give myself something. And now I'm not in that space anymore. So now I'm trying to figure out like, so where am I here? You know, so that led me to my exploration of femininity and what does it look like for a woman to lead outside her home, but also in her femininity. I was doing things in a very masculine way, you know, a lot of conquering, a lot of like linear, a lot of control. So when I let go of that, I don't know what I have. So that feels very painful right now. <laughs> But anyway, that's off topic. Well, I don't know if it's off topic because I think that something I would love to make space for in our conversation is that actual process. Because I think that anyone who is in a state of victimhood, who can't access victimhood, disassociation, anger, resentment, can't access a feeling of desire and pleasure, is feeling disconnected either from their family, their children, God, their Yiddishkeit, their life choices, their spouse, whatever it is. What is that process of like coming into desire, getting back in touch with yourself and getting back in touch with what you want in order to feel like what do Shabbos is coming? What do I want? 
like, what is that, what that experience that you described at the beginning? Like, what is that actual real process of getting to that space? It's a process of healing trauma. And for everyone, that's something it's, everyone has a different journey to take. I know mine, but everyone has, has their own journey. But like, I am, I so believe that that is the work of Darsvi is healing our trauma and changing the language of Gullahs into language of Gula. And we can only do that once we've healed our wounds because MS is MS. And if it doesn't feel like MS, it's because of the blockages that we've built up, whether it's personal or whether it's our collective. And let me tell you, we have a lot of collective trauma. And so I feel like without doing that inner work, without doing that healing work, we literally cannot access any of the tools Tyra is giving us, Chassidus is giving us, that the Rebbe has given us. They're all disembodied ideas. We cannot begin to live in a gulatika way if we're still carrying around those wounds and we're not looking at ourselves. I think this is literally our work. The closer you get to yourself, the closer you get to your neshama, who is yourself? Yourself is a part of God. It's organic and it's natural. Like a Jew's natural state, right? Is to be connected to Hashem. A Jew's natural desire is to do what Hashem's want. If it doesn't feel natural, there's something wrong. There's a boo-boo there. We have to like heal it. I think a woman's natural state is to receive. A woman's natural state is to bring beauty. A woman's natural state is to desire and to enjoy and to have pleasure. And if we're not feeling that, it's because there's blockages. There are wounds. We need to heal them. We need to come back to our true selves. And I think that before Mashiach, women are rising, right, to to the feminine that was originally that Hashem really originally had in mind. I don't know enough about this yet. I'm still like in the very beginning of like understanding this whole feminine thing because it's like a mystery to me. But like I totally get that the feminine consciousness now is not the way it was. <laughs> not 20 years ago, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago. It's very different. And the closer we get to Mashiach, like the more our collective feminine consciousness is rising. And so I think it just speaks to the even more urgent need for us to like really make that journey back home. So I think for those of us who aren't, who feel stuck in some way, like, you know, something in your head, but it's just not there. Yeah. That's something to pay attention to. Yeah. That's why the work is. Well, also just remembering that it's not a mistake that Hashem put this awareness into our minds. It's not a mistake that we're not content with living in a have-to Yiddishkeit and a have-to parenthood. It's not just that we're not content with it, but that we feel like we can't go on with it. Exactly. Like right. it's not. It's exactly right. It's not a tenable situation. It's like really not going for one more day. It's really not. And you see that more and more with like the younger generation. Like nobody is willing to accept anything less than MS. And if it doesn't sound like MS, I don't want it. Okay, this is this is a generation that's going to greet Mashiach. Gala's yeah. language doesn't speak to our neshama anymore. So it's not a mistake that we're asking questions our mothers didn't ask. It's not a mistake that we're seeing things in a different way than our older teachers or grandmothers or mothers didn't see. It's not a mistake. Like Mashiach is about to come. And so that consciousness is rising up. And it's such a beautiful, exciting thing. But it's also very scary. I understand the fear. I understand the resistance because like toppling over the apple cart or questioning all the beliefs that you like held onto for your whole life or just questioning anything is very scary. I get it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm here to tell you that the outcome is is only light. It's it's MS, it's truth, it's Hashem. Like the process is very messy and we can't be afraid of the mess. This is our work. Breaking gullahs is not clean work. It's messy work. 
What was that like for you, toppling the apple cart? It was so scary. In your own life. It's very scary for me. Like, I didn't want to go there. I was like, I just resisted for a long time. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to think about it. It was just fear. Like, I had a lot of fear in my system. I felt like the earth was not there underneath my feet. Like, you know, I built a nice little house of cards. <laughs> it was cards. I had no foundation, okay? It all fell down. And now I'm like questioning things that I thought were all so holy and also like, this is the way it is. Or, and it's not that it's not, but like, I need to decide that for myself. Thank you very much. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. I think maybe it's not so messy for me. Maybe it's, it's not as messy as somebody who just walks away from the just kite, you know, and starts wearing jeans and like divorces her husband. Like it doesn't, that wasn't my story. <laughs> like not that kind of mess, but it was just, it was just, it just felt, I felt a lot of fear before I could begin to just trust where Hashem is taking me is a journey of healing and a journey of truth and a journey back to myself. But yeah, there was a lot of fear initially. Did you have the fear of like, well, if I don't have to, you know, Mm -hmm. do Shabbos in this way, Mm -hmm. then I surely, I won't want to, if I don't have to give my kids a good time, then surely I won't want to give them a good time. If I don't have to have guests, then of course I will never have guests again. When I first heard this, you don't have to, I was like, what do you mean? I don't have to. (laughs) I couldn't, I couldn't accept it. It took me like a lot of weeks and then I had to experience it. I don't have to. I think for some people, when you feel like all there is, is a have to, and you say, I actually don't have to, and then you move away and give yourself space, then you give yourself room to choose it again. Maybe. But the fear is because there's also an equal chance that you won't choose it again. And that option has to be there for you to make a real choice. If you didn't have an option to not choose it, then it's not a choice. You know how we're like taught, like you have Bechir HaChavshis, but like, this is the best way and don't try anything else, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that's the vulnerability of Hashem, actually, is Hashem giving us that space to choose him or not to choose him, right? I've heard this before in Hasidah's classes, how like Hashem made himself vulnerable because he wanted so deeply a relationship with us that he had to like conceal himself enough for us to make the choice to, what if we don't choose Hashem? That choice has to be there for Hashem to really get all of us because when we have the choice to not choose him, and then we choose him, then we're really in a relationship with Hashem. Hashem has us. Like, I'm there. If it wasn't a choice, then, yeah, like, you don't want to be married to somebody who didn't, who didn't feel like they had a choice. It's interesting what you say about the lip service to free choice. Like, you have free choice, but, like, don't you dare. Don't you dare. dare. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't you dare. Uh, don't you dare choose it. Don't you dare be I'm gonna so suspend you. Yourself. I'm going to expel you. I'm going to knoss you. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. But you have Bechir yeah. But I just want to like turn that inward. I think that we tell this to ourselves most of all. Like those voices often, I mean, maybe it's something that like we internalized from the environment. Some people maybe yes, some people maybe no. But I also think that there's this internal victimhood and this internal feeling of like not having agency and not having choice and victimhood that prevents us from actually being in a relationship with Hashem because we don't feel like we can actually show up fully. Mm -hmm. We don't really feel like we can show up as ourselves because there's so much danger in showing up as ourselves. We're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of Mm -hmm. people looking at our behavior and our choices and judging them. I think there's a lot of fear of how we're going to be seen or, yeah, (laughs) we live in Galos. Okay. People do judge our outsides a lot. And so we feel like we can't always necessarily express where we actually are in our Yiddishkeit. Sometimes it's just 
a lonely thing on the inside and you have to keep up the front on the outside because we're afraid of that judgment. But I feel like I missed what you just, maybe I just missed the point of what you just said. Well, I want to concretize a little bit like what that inner, what those voices sound like, what those voices sound like, and also practically how this could express itself because it's not just, I am afraid of choice because I'm afraid that I'm not going to be from, but it's also, I'm afraid of choice because I'm afraid that what my neshama needs is going to look different than what someone Mm. else's is going to need. Mm. And that is going to be uncomfortable because society as a whole celebrates conformity. And when we live in a small community, conformity could be even stronger. So it's like, if I truly have agency, if I'm truly connected to myself, if I'm truly an individual and my neshama is leading with her full power and understanding of who she is, what her capacity is, what her family needs, et cetera, then the outcome is probably going to be different from the person next to me. We're so afraid of being different. It's a very vulnerable thing to really be who you are fully. It really is. Because you're right. The community does want conformity. And if you are so you, what's other people going to say? <laughs> There's a lot of pressure to be like other. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. Here's something that I, I think is important to remember, at least for me, is that I actually think that like our community, our Jewish community, doesn't want conformity. We celebrate individual leaders, people who are fully in their individuality, powerfully leading and guiding people. We celebrate that. But I think that the process of watching that unfold is uncomfortable because it's not linear. Mm-hmm. And but really we do celebrate individuality because we see it as we see the emiss of it. I think when you see someone who's an individual and like fully leaning into who they are, like unanimously, I would say I'm that the smiling Jewish so big because I think that you're so right. You just, you're so right. You were so right. No, when you see somebody who's so like unapologetically themselves, what does it do to you? It just makes you smile, you know? Yeah. You're like, oh, that's so beautiful. That's what you say you know? So you're right. (laughs) Like, I think that we do value that, but maybe we don't value the mess and the process. You're right. Well, also something else, Rishi, that I remember us speaking about was that another thing about being connected to your individual neshama and your individual neshama's path is that there isn't a clear roadmap. There is no particular role model that you can model your life after. There is you and your neshama I mean, there's you, which is your neshama, and there's a shem, and there's honesty, and there's trying to have a clear channel between you and your neshama, and there's no model that you need to become. And I think that's scary. It's unknown. We want to say, like, this is what a perfect Jew looks like. This is what a perfect shlucha looks like. This is what a perfect leader chassid, this is what it looks like. But the answer is, is that it doesn't look like that. It has never looked like that. Chassidim were never the same. Everyone was individual. And I think that more than ever, we're, we're feeling that rising up within us, but we just need to have the courage to follow our soul's voice yes. and courage. let that rip. Courage. It takes so much courage. Yeah. In a world of fear, it takes a lot of courage to lean into our soul's mission, to lean into being who we are. It just feels sacrilegious to us to say, oh, we don't have role models or we have to like, I don't know. I'm so sorry. No, not, I like, I fully resonate. No, I fully resonate with what you're saying. But the idea of what you just said, I I can't even repeat what you said because you just said it so beautifully, you know? 
But there are people who'd be like, well, that's sacrilegious because we were raised to believe that you're trying to emulate this one and trying to emulate that one and trying to emulate this and that, whatever. And so we're sort of taught to look outside of ourselves and not pay attention to our unique neshama and our unique place in the world and our unique, the time that we live in. And there's so many things that come together, you know, to inform who we are and our mission in the world that is so individual and so unique. Well, I think also that having a role model is not the same as like, I do think that we have role models to learn from, like really great people before us that we can learn so much from. Right. But there's a difference between looking up to someone and learning from them and trying to model our lives after them. Right. Like when certain elements of our Yiddishkeit become measurable and like quantifiable, and like this is how it's done. And like this person did X, Y, Z. So we right. do X, Y, Z. And it looks the same for everyone. And I'm not talking about like Hasidic customs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about modeling every one of our life choices after someone who came before us that we feel got it right as a way of outsourcing our inner voice and further shutting ourselves down. Yeah. But in truth, it's just parts. It's not the wholeness, right? So, you know, there's someone who shows you a part and another person who shows you a part, another person who shows you a part, but the wholeness of who we are, you know what I mean? Saying only we can see that. Yeah. We have to be guided by our own inner voices and our own intuition because there could be somebody who one person emulates one part of them and we emulate another part of them because that speaks to our soul. And there isn't one person who we model our entire lives after those people, like we're different people, <laughs> but there's a part here and a part there. And then I guess the wholeness of who we are is just led by our own, our own quiet, still small voice, the voice of our neshama. But you're right. I love that word that you said, courage. <laughs> It takes courage. Something that is comforting to me that I'm just thinking about now as we speak about role models is the fact that the one role model who is large enough to lead us fully and encourage us to be who we are is the Rebbe, mm -hmm. because the Rebbe was someone who carved his own path, who had so much courage in following his Nishama's path. And obviously the Rebbe was a tzaddik, but I think that even just recognizing the way that the Rebbe stepped into his neshama's power, which was to be the leader of the generation, is an incredible example of like what it looks like to really step into the uncertainty of who you need to be. It doesn't have to be publicly. I mean, privately, within your own life, within your own self, how you interact with yourself. Like the Rebbe was radical in that oh way, God, yes. courageous, and definitely stepped into Ratzain and Tainog and absolute desire of what do I want the world to look like? The Rebbe was not doing what he thought he should be doing. He was doing what he truly wanted to do. Oh, perfect. So beautiful. Yeah. 100%. Like a thousand percent. The Rebbe was so who he was. Yeah. Yeah. Like totally challenging the status quo, completely disregarding what anyone's opinion of him was. He had a vision. He had a desire. You're right. He fully embraced that. And he encouraged every individual to do the same. He saw that every unique person had a unique purpose, had a unique mission. His job was really to uncover that for us. I just feel so grateful that I'm beginning to like see that for myself and beginning to hear that for myself and just really getting to know myself and to know my own power and to know how big my vessel actually is, that it's much bigger than I thought it was. Like I have a lot of gratitude for being able to make that journey home. and. I don't know. I'm one of those fortunate people who got to actually see the Rebbe and who he actually saw me. And it just gives me chills to think about how like, if he looked at me as like a little, 
I don't know, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, how he saw. He really saw who I was, but it took me so long for me to see who I was. Yeah. We're so lucky. It's really powerful. We're so lucky to have had the Rebbe and to have him, you know? Yeah. I just like hope I can hear what the Rebbe says like differently. And I do hear it differently. I don't want to hear the same old thing that I usually hear. I want to hear what he really is saying, you know? Wow. Let's end off with advice. What's the advice to anyone hoping to lean more into their Ratan and Tainag in the way that they show up in the world, really, really lean into their soul's desire, get back in touch with that still small voice and just show up with less have to and more I want? Mm. I'm not good with tips. <laughs> tips Maybe. and tricks by Rishi. Yeah, right. I'm like the queen of that. Yeah, because everyone's journey is so different to how you reach that point, you know? Like, your way to get there is going to be completely you and not like anyone else's. But maybe if I can say that being able to tap into your desires and what you truly want is you need to give yourself space to do so. Like, I think you have to find a place where you feel like you can take up a lot of space. So if it's sitting outside or sitting in a place that just feels so calm and settling and beautiful and like taking out a piece of paper and like, imagining painting yourself a picture a dream like just dream like what would the most beautiful home look like what would the most beautiful family look like what would a beautiful shabbos look like what would just a random tuesday look like maybe it's just like music and dancing in your kitchen maybe it's like running outside in the sunshine maybe it's I don't know, but like give yourself space to just dream and clear your mind of all the have tos. Like pretend there is no responsibilities. Pretend there are no commitments for five minutes. The wait for five minutes, take all those away. You can have the world. What do you want? I don't know. I feel like something's going to bubble up. And whatever bubbles up is so powerful. Like pay attention, write it down, draw a picture of it. I don't know, like tell it to somebody else, give it a voice, like put it out in the universe in some way. I don't know. That's just a practice that I'm starting to do is like sitting down with a piece of paper and just like pretending I didn't have to do anything. What do I want? And then I start writing things down that like I never knew that I could have. (laughs) And then I find that as I go along my day, my week, whatever, it's the intention that I set. Like I find that those things come in. I don't know how it works, but it it does sometimes. But like, we just have to put it out there. We have to make that Kaylee. I feel like all the light is there waiting for us to just be like, here I am. I want. (laughs) And then Hashem can say here, I had it the whole time. And I have more and I have more. It's endless. I'm infinite. I can give you infinite. Trust me. And we lean into that trust and we're like, yes. I'm big enough. I'm worthy enough. I can. I can take all of it. I can receive. I love how you said it comes and sometimes it doesn't, but I think that's kind of the point is that it already came when we opened ourselves up to knowing that's right. who we are and what it is that we actually want in this world. Because if you show up to a Shabbos meal that you dreamt up in its perfect form and the children are fighting and it's not as beautiful, but you're not in that victimhood state, you're in that state of I'm here, Hashem. I'm here in Shabbos and it's beautiful and I'm here to receive the beauty that is here. 
then I actually think that letting ourselves desire actually takes away the expectation and opens up our presence. You're giving your soul a voice. When your soul has a voice and it can take up space in here, that's almost all you need sometimes is allowing yourself to just desire and paint a picture of what you want. You're giving your neshama a voice. And even if it doesn't materialize, it almost feels like, but Hashem knows how much I want. I want, I still want. And even if it's not showing up right now, I still want it. And I think that's just such powerful, powerful energy. Yeah. You just have like a beautiful way of saying things. I feel like (laughs) I mess up everything you say. (laughs) Thank you so much. I think that you are so well-spoken and like, I keep getting like chills. I don't know if you saw a bunch of times I was just like closing my eyes. I was like, yes, Mm. you worded things perfectly. Mm. Like certain things that are like really big ideas. I felt that you gave them the exact words that they need to like be crystallized mm. inside of someone's consciousness, you know? Oh, thank like you for you saying really that. really did that. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to receive that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> it's not easy for me. I want to tell you it hurts sometimes because to receive, you have to open your heart. So for some people whose heart have to be closed for a very long time, opening that up feels very, very hard and vulnerable. So receiving from someone else is like, oh, sometimes it hurts, but I'm going to receive it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me into your space. I was like terrified, but I think that, I think there's a lot of holiness here. Yeah. Beginning to like speak the language of Gula for ourselves. And it begins with questions, a lot of questioning. It doesn't begin with knowing the answers for sure not. But like that search, that search for Hashem, that's so much tie up that Hashem has, right? He, we're actively searching for him. That's what Hashem wants, right? Oh, now, now that imagery of that, of that beautiful song of the little boy who was playing with his friends and the friends stopped searching for him. They were playing hide and seek, right? And Hashem cries, why did you stop looking for me? Right? Or something. It's like haunting. This act of search for Hashem, it's like, it's so beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful. Yeah. I like how you said that. Instead of searching for a definitive answer, which feels safe, we could strengthen the question. And I think that the stronger the question, like the answer is found within the strong question. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Rishi. Thank you. I love this. I think so much. This is the Mashiachic place. (laughs) It really is. It really is. We're beginning to like shift our consciousness. And I think that that's extremely powerful. So I think the work you do is very holy, even if sometimes you don't feel it, but it really is. Very human showing up to do it. So, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the whole point. That's the point. That's the point. I know. Elokai Zakinina, Betoratra Urimitotecha, Lichamberet Nishmati Tamidilecha, Mechamber, Mechamber. If you enjoyed today's episode and it sparked something for you, touched your heart or touched a raw nerve or just got you thinking, I want to invite you to keep this godly conversation going. Share the episode with a friend, tag us on social media with your follow-up thoughts. Let's get the truths of Torah into the atmosphere. The world needs it right now more than ever. You can email us at info at humanandholy.com. Find us on Instagram at humanandholy. And you can sponsor an episode or give it any amount through our site, humanandholy.com slash sponsor.
New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single one. And while you're at it, feel free to leave us a five-star rating. It helps other people find the podcast and it brings us joy. Thanks for listening and we'll talk next week.